Thank you, Kent, and um, welcome again this morning. We have a lot of noises that we can sometimes attribute to the season. Some of it's snotty noses and babies crying and things like that, and we're just going to sort of claim all of that today as acts of worship. I mean, we're here. We're a little snotty. That's okay. It's not going to keep us from worship, so thank you for being here despite all the things that we have going on in our lives. Um, it is a joyful time, as, as Kent mentioned, to reflect on the seasons of the year and how we kind of conceive our, our Christian journey throughout the year. And this really is a great time to give thanks for and contemplate the reality that Christ is victorious, that he reigns, that there's nothing that uh, is greater than the power of God given to us and made known to us through the cross of Jesus Christ. And so we that's sort of the grounding event, the central event of our whole lives together as a church and as believers. It's a great time to remember where we stand because of that. I can't speak for other parts of the United States, certainly not the other parts of the world, but as far as the southwestern United States go, as far as West Texas, eastern New Mexico, southern Kansas, Oklahoma, where that whole this whole area that we live in, I think if you took a survey of people, you know, two generations ago, including our generation, and, and you just asked, did a mass survey, what's the most common table prayer that you've heard growing up and what's the most common table prayer that you pass on to your kids without even realizing it I think that by and large the the prayer that would win would be some form of Lord bless this food to the nourishment of our bodies and our bodies to thy service. Yeah, you all know it. it's instinctive. Like We don't learn it in church so much or in confirmation class so much as we just learn it from hearing other people pray for food. And it's taken on various forms. There's an old form of it that's very similar in the Book of Common Prayer in the 1500s version. So we know people have been praying that a long time, some version of that. But I love how it's taken shape in our lives and our own family members that we heard praying that growing up. It's just a very basic, very beautiful prayer. It occurs to me this week as we're talking about the subject of service and giving that this is a very dangerous prayer. This is a very dangerous prayer. I mean, this ought to make the gates of hell shake a little bit when we pray this prayer. It's just an ordinary table prayer. But think about what we're asking. The governing verb in the prayer is bless. We're asking God to bless the food that we're eating. We're asking then God to bless us as we offer ourselves for his service. It's basically a full-blown consecration prayer where we say, God, all that I am and all that I have is yours. It's subtle, but it's there. Bless my body. Bless our bodies together for your service. It's a crazy, risky, beautiful prayer that we pray. When we pray, Lord, it's this food, or really I think it can apply to any gift. You can think about any gift that you have or, or celebrate. Uh, you can, it can be said of a friendship. Lord, bless this friendship that I have received. And now bless us to your service, right? It's, it, it's just, it works for anything that you receive as a gift. And food being something that we eat, you know, roughly three times a day, it's, it's a great thing to remember. That that's what we're praying all the time, even unconsciously. We're offering ourselves to God and asking Him to use us as he sees fit. A beautiful prayer, a risky prayer. 
Okay, quick recap of the series that we're in, and we're finishing up today, but we've been talking about how the life of communion, essentially, as we take it here in church, the life of communion as we see Christ breaking bread in the world and feeding the multitudes, as we see Christ breaking bread with his disciples, teaching us how to do it, commanding us to continue doing it, as we've been talking about that aspect of it, that when Christ gathered the multitudes to feed them, he did four things, right? He took bread, he took bread out of the world, he chose that bread, just like he chooses us in baptism, he marks us, and then Christ blessed the bread, it's, it's blessed, it's marked again with, with the name of Christ, it just says we are marked, we are blessed, we are given the gifts that we need to be in the world, and then we are broken. We undergo the same breaking that the bread undergoes. And the final movement, as before the circle just continues, back around to taking, blessing, choosing, all that stuff, the final movement is giving. We are finally given as bread for the world. The church is the broken body of Christ in the world. We are the healed body, but we're also always the broken body, and we're given as an offering for the world, that the world might know Jesus through our actions, through our lives, through our words, the whole deal. In Holy Communion, something unbelievable happens. In Holy Communion, and we don't fully understand it, that's why we call it a holy mystery. That's why the word holy is there. If we could perfectly explain it, if I could write you a chemistry equation like I so often want to do, be able to explain it perfectly, we wouldn't need to call it holy. It would just We would understand it perfectly. And one day we will. But for now, we don't fully get it. And so we celebrate the mystery. But what happens in one way or another is that heaven comes down to earth. Heaven meets earth. It's like what the temple used to be for our ancestors, the Israelites. They went to the temple and they saw it as the joining of heaven and earth. That's where people met with God. And that was the only place that people met with God. And so for us as Christians, though, we believe that Jesus takes the place of the temple. And so Jesus, now in Jesus, we meet with God wherever we are. Certainly when we're gathered for worship together, when we're on our knees in evening prayer, or we're crying out to God, driving down the road, we meet with God in Jesus. That's where heaven meets earth. Meets earth is here. So we, we do our best to symbolize it with an altar table, saying this is a holy place. Christ has come down and has brought heaven to earth. So that's what's happening in one way or another. Christ has given himself for the world as an offering on the cross. And then we, as the body of Christ, are given as an offering to the world just as well. So Christ is given to the world. We are given to the world. We are the body of Jesus. The body of Jesus has been given. It's this beautiful mystery. We are given, just like Christ is given, constantly being offered to the world as a gift, a sign of redemption. Through Holy Communion, and through meeting with God in this way, you and I, actually, this is amazing, we become part of the answer to the prayer that, that we pray when we pray the Lord's Prayer. So think about it. The Lord's Prayer is something that disciples of Jesus have been praying since Jesus taught it to them, so roughly 2,000 years ago. It's been prayed throughout cultures, throughout history, different languages, different places. This prayer is as old as the church. And it was a little bit older, actually, than the church. But... It's always being prayed. And what is one of the main petitions of the Lord's Prayer? Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. 
So we're asking God to bring heaven to earth. And part of what God says to that is, okay, I'm going to give heaven to the world through you, the church. So as you are undergoing the process of transformation, receiving Christ, receiving Christ into your body, receiving Christ into your soul, as he's transforming you and transforming me, we become part of the answer to that prayer. Have you ever thought about the fact that your transformed life is the answer to other people's prayers? The answer to my prayers, to our prayers? But you're a part of the answer. God didn't answer that prayer and doesn't answer that prayer with billboards and arm's length signs where, oh, now we can tell heaven's come to earth because everything's working out good and I can see these things and my life's all... Heaven comes to earth in humble forms. In a humble form of Jesus born in a manger, in the humble form of you and I walking around in our jobs and raising our families. One of the ways that Christ redeems the world. Heaven meets earth in you and in me. It's very humbling to consider. How are we given? Why are we given? What is the nature of our givenness to the world. We understand now, okay, I'm, I'm an offering to Christ. I've offered myself to God. Now I'm being offered to others. I'm being offered to the world as a sign of Jesus, that Jesus loves me and he loves them and he loves us. What does it look like? What is the nature of this giving? We remember when we talk about giving it's in the nature of God to give. It, it's not something God has to conjure up and say, you know, I think I'll be benevolent this season. God is always giving. He can't act apart from the nature of himself, which is giving. From the beginning of time, before time actually, before we were ever created, there was always a community of persons in the Holy Trinity. We, we talk about this, right? Three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in perfect unity and perfect distinctiveness in their personhood. And again, a mystery that we don't fully understand, but we know eternally self-giving love right giving life giving love to one another that cycle of giving love is sort of like this eternal dance and we get in on that god doesn't create you and create me because he needs a buddy and he's not lonely he doesn't need us he creates us because it's in his nature is well up with joy and he wants to share the goodness of the world that he's created with people who are animated, who can breathe the air and climb the mountains and receive the Spirit. This is part of what God delights in. It is perfect and sheer gift. So if God is that way and He gives to us in that way, it makes sense that our giving would look that way. It would reflect that same kind of generosity. It would reflect that same kind of origin in how our gift, our giving comes together. See, we give, we are given to the world not just in the in what we do, not just in the service with our hands and feet, but we're given to the world by who we are, by who we become. So in that way, who we are becoming and the gifts that we are giving are inseparable. It's all in the same nature. It's all from the same place. God giving his life to us, us being transformed in the image of God and sharing ourselves with the world just for being in the world. We're not taken out of the world. Christ, when he prayed in John 17, he said, I don't pray that you take them out of the world, but I pray that you make them one in the world, right? Witnesses, 
It's like the Eucharistic prayer, the, the blessing that we pray over the bread and the wine is make them one with Christ, one with each other, and one in ministry to all the world. It's, that, it's just that John 17. We're one with Jesus, we're one with each other, and we're one as we are sent out as an offering to the world. A beautiful rhythm. So for the text today, just to spend the rest of our time looking at the nature of how we give and how God has given himself to us, I want to commend uh, Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And I'm going to read through verse 11 this morning. So if there is any encouragement in Jesus, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy. This is Paul writing to the church saying, complete, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, by having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. The, the church then, it's hard to imagine, but they were bickering, right? For what Paul's recognizing as little things. They're fighting over things that aren't the main thing. He says, look, if you want to make my joy complete, as the one who's a leader and a pastor among you, don't fuss about this little stuff. Don't fight and bicker and infight and do all this stuff, but be of the same mind. Full accord, one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among you, all y'all, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to. It's a hard verb to translate. Uh, Stephen Fowle, one of my favorite translations of it, says that he, Christ did not count his status with God as something that he would use for his own advantage, something he would use for his own benefit, but instead emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of humanity, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When we want to look at the fundamental quality of a disciple, when we look at the fundamental idea of humility, in no place is it more clear in the New Testament than here. Philippians 2. This is what humility looks like. It's the laying down of our lives in the same way that Jesus laid down his life. Even though Jesus had everything, full equality with God, he didn't use what he had been given as something to be used for his own advantage, but instead he gave his life away. He poured out his life, was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is the life of a disciple. It's, this is how we know that the story ends. This is how it works. And so we know from the beginning that it's going to be hard. We see what it costs Jesus, and we see what it's going to cost us. It's the fully, just fully giving of ourselves to whatever God is calling us to do. 
It's complete surrender, complete humility. It's also, it's good to remember, it's the ultimate strength. We have to remember when we read passages like this and we see Jesus on the cross, we have to remember that Jesus was not a victim. That this is not, how, we're not doormats. That's not humility. No one, no one took Jesus' life from him. No one forced him to do that. He, he took his own strength, the strongest strength that's ever, the world has ever known. And this is what he did with it. He laid it down in the service of others. So humility is the work from a place of strength. It's not for those that can't do otherwise. It's for those taking ultimate strength and laying it on the altar. And saying, God, everything that I have been given, all of my strength, everything that I have, every gift I've been given, the knowledge that I have, I'm giving it to you for the service of the world, that the world might know that there's a God that loves in this way. It is the nature of God to give, to pour out. We cannot give what we do not possess. Christ does not give what he doesn't possess, and we as disciples can't give what we don't possess. We can't have, we can't give what we don't have. Uh, one of my uh, seminary professors was one of my favorites, and he was a West Texas guy. He grew up in Quanta, a farm and ranch, and, and his name was Steve Martin, and not, not the same guy as the actor, but uh, he, he was a great, he was a great guy, very serious. We used to kind of tease with him a little bit because he just always was like he was speaking about the world. When he got up to teach class, it was just sort of this thing, and he would just right into the stuff that would just, you know, and you're like, okay, I guess no pleasantries. You know, you get out the pen and here we go. But he talked in this real endearing southern tone, and he would talk this way. And one of the things he would always say is, now, Ryan, you have to remember that union precedes kenosis. Union precedes kenosis. And I'm like, I have no idea what any of those words mean. And when you put them together and say them like that, I really don't know what you're talking about. But by the end, I figured out what he was saying. He was talking about this passage, saying that before kenosis is the Greek word for pouring his life out, and Jesus pours his life out. But before he can pour his life out, he knows that he has full union with God. So he's saying we have to be unified with God before we pour ourselves out. There are a whole host of Christians that are serving from a place of emptiness. They're, we're trying to serve and there's nothing in the tank. We're trying to serve and there's no union. We just want to pour ourselves out and pour ourselves out and we feel burned out. We feel, you know, like the thing has passed us by. We don't have the joy that we initially had when we started serving. We have to somehow get back to that place of union in order to continue giving. That's what God's asking us to do. He's not asking us to serve from a place of, oh, I guess if no one else will do it. Sometimes that's how we get in. Uh, but the ongoing quality of our service is the same quality with which God gives his very life to us. Not because he has to, not out of compulsion, but because he desires to. He wants to offer his life to us. Okay. Transition just a little bit. All right, Ryan, I get it. That's how God gives his life to us. Our lives are mystically and mysteriously given to the world in that way. Got it. That all sounds nice. Sounds like a song. Very good. How do we, what does it look like for us to serve? What is it, practically, how do we serve in the world? What does it look like for you and I to serve in the church, in the, the community, in Nairobi, 
in Fort Collins, Colorado, in Sweetwater, Texas, in Nolan, Texas, wherever we are, what does it look like for us to serve? Certainly it means many things that we could discuss, and you all know this. I mean, you're, you're old pros at this by now. But I wanted to call attention to one particular thing, one aspect of service that sometimes goes overlooked. To get there, I'll tell you a story about the folks that trimmed our trees yesterday. All right, and you would recognize them around town, very, very good tree trimmers, good business, very nice guys uh, from the area. And I watched as the guy who's in charge, okay, he shows up and he's got his crew. And what are they doing to start the day? They're, they're sharpening their chainsaws and they're gassing everything up and they're getting everything ready. But the guy who's in charge, whose name's on the ticket, here's what he's doing before anything happens. And he walks over here and he looks and he rubs his chin and then he walks to the other side of the tree and he looks at the sunlight and he says, okay, now there's east and how's that sun move across here? All right, how's this work? And he studies. You just watch him and he does this for a matter of minutes. What is he doing? He's being intentional. He's trying to figure out the precise way that that tree needs to be trimmed for its health, for the health of the grass around it and all those things. He's making decisions but he's spending time being intentional. I think sometimes a piece that's missing from our discipleship and our service is that piece of intentionality. Because we all want to give. We, it's within all of us to give, to be generous. God put that desire there. We are made in the image of a God who gives and gives and gives and gives. So it's natural for us to just say, yeah, I want to be helpful. I want to give. I want to do some good stuff. But there's a huge gap between often what we want and what we actually do and we could just call that gap life. I mean, it's just hard. Like A lot of things get in the way. So without an element of intentionality, we don't ever get from A to B. Maybe it's not tree trimming you've seen, but you can imagine somebody in your life before they start a task and what they do. My wife, before she is going to organize an office or a house or something, she paces and she looks and she studies and she of the equipment and what's available and what kind of folders you have and all these things and she goes around and, it, and then you, every, I, I at least have learned to like step away, just step away right, it's about to happen, she's about to drop this ball and say okay now if you really want to get, here's what's going to have to happen and then she'll start telling you, you do this, you do this you do this, you do this, you do this, you do this and this stuff that you bring in, this pile of junk that's got to go, it's going to look this way and da 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 and if you don't like it, don't ask for my help you know, that's how that works. So, um, but she's an expert. She sees those things. So she studies and she is intentional about how she does it. We all know people who have served in the church and in the community and we've heard their stories and we've heard them say, you know, I just was praying about how God might want to use me and the church, whatever. And I just began to notice this thing that needed to be done. And so I just went and asked if it was okay if I did it. And of course, people said, absolutely, get after it. And that's how I got started doing this, you know, whatever. There's lots of stories. But our greatest joy, our greatest happiness is found in giving ourselves for others. It's a core fundamental principle. We all would affirm that. Our greatest joy comes in giving ourselves to others. It shouldn't surprise us because we've talked about God's nature, right? Why would God set it up that way? Why would he give you and I the most joy in serving others? Well, he set it up that way. That's, that's his nature. 
He wants us to have joy and happiness, but it doesn't just download. It doesn't just happen just being around. It happens as we're getting our hands dirty, as we're getting our hearts dirty, and we're serving, we're putting ourselves out there with others, and we notice, okay, I've been missing, this is a piece that I've been missing, and I do find myself full of joy and happy for being able to do these things. So, the invitation from Christ this morning uh, is very simple, and it goes along with this Philippians 2. It's just a reminder. It's an invitation to remember that you and I are called to union with God. It's our most basic calling. We are called to be one with Jesus Christ. In whatever way you need to do that this morning or this week, to give yourself anew to Jesus, to accept the gift, the possibility of being one with Jesus, don't let anything hold you back in that response. And as you're giving yourself to Christ and experiencing Him give Himself to you. Begin asking, how can I serve? How can I take this overflow of joy that is within me from being unified with Jesus? And how can I share that with the world? What practical gifts do I have? What things do I need to learn? What people could be served uniquely by me? What children, what youth, what neighbors, what people that we see every day. Let's pray.